Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us after another extremely exciting week of NBA basketball. I wanted to tie two different threads together this week and actually ended up doing it with two different guests. We have Jack Winter of ESPN's Troop Network, Harwood Paroxysm, Warriors World, to talk about most of the playoff run, and then also a continuation of the Eliminated series, this time on the Sacramento Kings with Jonathan Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom. But first off, we have Jack Winter, and we went through a lot of different topics, started out with the first round, then went into an extended discussion on the Mark Jackson firing and what the Warriors should do from here and the context for everything, and then a little bit of a preview of what's coming up next. That conversation runs about an hour. It was great to have him on. I've wanted to have him on for a while, and it was great to have that conversation and the sheer serendipity of having our discussion to have this conversation a couple weeks ago and having it the day after Mark Jackson got fired worked out really well. I loved his take on the situation and a lot of fun talk in terms of what would be good for a next coach for them and getting into all that. So as I said, it runs about an hour. Hope you'll enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, man, I'm excited. I'm so, like, and like I said, I'm sorry we couldn't do it. I think we talked like a month ago about doing it and then I just got so busy with recovery and moving back home that, you know, just kind of let it go by the wayside, but glad we're doing it now. Yeah, glad we're doing it now. So we just finished the first round of the playoffs. Very exciting. And I was wondering to start off with what your biggest takeaways were from that first round. You know, we've talked a lot about the parody in the NBA and people have people saying how just the first round of the playoffs is indicative of the parody in this league. And, you know, and people who are critical of the NBA say that's what the NBA lacks. You know, they're only so many teams have won a title since 2000. Only so many teams have won a title, you know, going back to the 60s and 70s. But I'm not sure this is as great an indicator of parity as we'd all like to believe, probably, as you and I, as analysts of the NBA and people who are listening as fans. I think it's just more indicative of the fact that the West is so, so, so strong compared to the East. You know, probably the eight of the, you could probably say nine best teams in the league now with the way Indiana's playing reside in the Western Conference. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. And we knew it all season long, but then just after such competitive first round series in the West, any of those series really could have gone either way. I think that's the biggest takeaway from the first round. Yeah. And the other thing that's been interesting with it, and is obviously this could change over the next week or two, is that I like the idea of there being parity or balance. I think balance is a better word for it. I think you articulated a good point there in the first round and then having that clarify itself in the other round. So basically the idea that there are a lot of teams that are close and then there might be a group of teams that are a little bit better than those. And then what that would lead to would be a very exciting conference finals and NBA finals, which is, I think that's fine. You know, it's 
it would be all right if this round wasn't as close as the other rounds were, just to make sure that it serves the purpose of clarifying to make sure that the best three or the best four teams are still left at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a common criticism of the NBA is that it lacks it lacks kind of the surprise element that college basketball does with the single elimination tournament. And especially when we went to seven games, I'm not, I'm not sure when that when we went to seven games from five for the first round, but that really ensures that the best teams advance. But that's something I love about the NBA. Because, you know, when you look back at a season and you look at the conference finalists and the NBA finalists, you'll really get a snapshot of who the best teams were and the storylines throughout a season, uh, just when looking back at stuff like that. So that's something that's great about the NBA to me and something that, like you said, we'll certainly, uh, you know, we'll certainly continue seeing whether first rounds are as competitive as this one was or uh, or not going forward. And as much as I don't like the narratives of individual people and championships, it, having a more fair system does lead to that being at least a more reasonable discussion because you're not going to get into those situations, let's say like in NFL playoffs, right. where a team just gets hot for three games and wins it. Mm -hmm. You can see that kind of circumstance in the NBA. Teams do not win championships who fail to earn it. You know, you yep. can see not a team other than the most deserving or the best team win. It happens every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I think of that Pistons team that beat the Lakers. I think that Lakers team was the best team in the league that year. But they lost for reasons that were justifiable, and the Pistons earned the opportunity to get there. Right. And I like the idea that the team who wins the championship is going to be deserving of being there and that when you look at it, you don't go, oh, wow, I forgot that they won. You know, you get those runs in other sports, even as, as legitimate as hockey is with the seven-game series, it it lends itself to streaks and all that. And I think the NBA is the one sport, one league, where the champion is really legitimate under all circumstances. Yeah, no, I, I, t I totally agree with you. And like I said earlier, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think that's a good thing. And I think that's one of the best things about our league is that when you look back the champion is the champion for a reason. And it's because they were likely the best team, if not from start to finish, they were one of the several best teams from start to finish. Like if Miami wins this year, even though they kind of had a middling for them regular season, we'll know that they were one of the three or four best teams all year long. And, you know, we assumed that they'd get there just based on their talent level and what we saw from them in the past two or three years. And uh, yeah, I mean, I love that about the NBA. People don't, but I think if you're an avid follower like we are and, you know, like our listeners are, I think that's, that's something that, you know, we really appreciate. One of the questions that I asked the people who were on the pre-playoff podcast was that different players rise to different levels of fame in the playoffs. You know, guys mm -hmm. can go from being unknowns to household names and from household names to stars. Are there any players that you think have made that jump in the first round? And are there any that you expect to do it in the next couple? You know, I mean, the first name that comes to mind, obviously, and, you know, it's not, it's not going to surprise you when I say it, is Damian Lillard. And, uh, you know, being Bay, Bay Area people like you and I are, I think we're, you know, kind of both kind of pleased about that. Damian's from Oakland. But, you know, he just had a dominant first-round series against the Rockets. He was efficient. I don't have the numbers right in front of me here, but I think it was something like 26 and 7 uh, with some really, really strong efficiency numbers. And obviously Patrick Beverly was kind of hobbled during that series, and we all know about the Rockets' problems with health defense. But, you know, the narrative that was building during the season about Lillard was that he was the new Mr. Clutch, right? First two months of the season, Portland had an outstanding record in close games. It kind of evened out uh, as the season went on, but that was mostly because Lillard was so dominant uh, there in the last three or five minutes of games within five points on either side. And then, of course, he hits that 
awesome game winner or uh, really series winner, I guess, in game six, uh, you know, that we'll we'll really remember forever. He's the breakout star of the playoffs. What's going to be interesting is if it continues over, if it carries over into the series against San Antonio. I'm I'm, I'm dubious based on the matchups there and just whether or not Terry Stotts will be able to hide him defensively uh, against San Antonio, especially when they bring Manu off the bench. uh, So they're playing Kawhi. Manu and Tony Parker. I'm just not sure where you put Damian Lillard because as fantastic as he is offensively, he's not equally deficient on the other end. He's not James Harden bad. His efforts a little better, but he's just screened far too easily and he gets lost far too easily in off-ball screening situations. But if there's a breakout star of the playoffs, it's certainly him. It'll just be interesting to see whether or not it continues. And you bring up a great point with Lillard defending the Spurs, and I think that the other side of that is also true, and it's something that we saw with Stephen Curry last year when he kind of came back to earth in the later games against the Spurs, is that Danny Green can do a really good job guarding opposing point guards, Mm -hmm. and you can hide Tony Parker for small stretches on Portland's wings. They're very good players, and they can hit open shots and all that, but they're not dominant creators, and so that makes them a little bit more susceptible to a guy like Tony Parker, and the Spurs are a team that is totally willing to do that. They're not a team that's going to sit there and go, oh, we have to have our point guard on the opposing point guard because that's the way things go. Right. So I think we could see some Danny Green wreak some havoc. And, you know, if it got really rough, I would, what I want to see just from a basketball nerd perspective is a little bit of Kawhi on Damian Lillard to just see what extreme length can do to, to Damian. And the other guy that, that I think will maybe have two guys on the same team in the same backcourt that could end up making a, a little bit of a leap are John Wall and Bradley Beal. Mm-hmm. They're guys, one of the things that I think about when you think about people who are going to break out, and this happened with Steph last year, is when you look for people who are already good, right. who the general basketball public might not know how good they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that applies to both Beal and Wall. And I, I got to cover them the end of last year from basically from when John Wall returned from his injury and was starting again. My first game I covered there was his first start, and then I left at the end of the regular season and ended up covering the Warriors' playoff run. And those guys are incredible talents that are still trying to figure out exactly how good they can be. And they're getting a really nice opportunity with the flawed Bulls team and a disintegrating Pacers team. <laughs> I like that. I like that description. Disintegrating is certainly a good one. I think Wall is kind of a, more of a known commodity than Beal, obviously, just because he's been around a while longer and he's he was an all-star this year, won the strange dunk contest, whatever that was. But yeah, Beal, that's a good point about Beal. He could really break out and he actually performed really well against Chicago. Um, and just looking back at that series, I don't really think of him performing as well as the stats indicate. I'm, I have him in front of me here. He averaged 25 and four on 44% from the field and 46 from three. Those are stellar, stellar numbers against the Chicago defense that, you know, as we all know, maybe not quite dominant, especially in this series, but is very, very, very good. He's a really, really talented guy. And like you said, against this uh, disintegrating Indiana team, he's really a guy, he and Wall, um, can really exploit the kind of new deficiencies that Indiana has uh, with Roy Hibbert not playing like the Roy Hibbert that, you know, we've we've grown accustomed to here uh, prior to these last two months. Wall can get into the lane so much easier now. If Yon Mahimi's in there, Indiana doesn't have that rim protection. And then if once Wall draws those double teams, he can kick out to Beal and Ariza. And Ariza actually had a big game one. Paul George was was defending Ariza for the majority of the time and just got lost off ball far too often uh, in, ha- in the half court and transition. So I'm interested to see if Frank Vogel kind of switches those matchups a little bit going forward, whether Paul George takes Wall or he takes Beal and just to see how they go from there. Because like you said, if 
if uh, if there's going to be a, a breakout star other than Lillard here in this in these conference semifinals, it'll probably be one of those two Washington guards. And you bring up a very interesting point when it comes to Paul George getting lost off the ball. I think that there's a, a nuance in quality defenders that's been lost a little bit in the discussion. And to me, there's a difference between, for some guys, not every guy, obviously, mm-hmm. between defending on-ball players and defending off-ball players. And the, for me, another amazing example of that was Clay Thompson. Clay did a very good job, generally, guarding Chris Paul, but he sometimes has trouble following guys off the ball because he gets caught in screens and because it's a different kind of awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that some guys have that problem. Obviously, it can also be corrected over time. And it's possible that at the present time, Paul George's best role could be as the lead primary ball defender of, of the guy who runs the other team's offense and just use the versatility of the other two guys, of George Hill and Lance, let's say, to handle everything else and just put Paul George on whoever the other team is running their offense through. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, that's what I assumed, how how I assumed Indiana would start, actually. I thought they'd put, I thought Vogel would put George on wall and kind of use his length and his ability to slither around ball screens and kind of stay attached to Wall's hip, you know, to really thwart those pick and rolls and make that pocket pass more difficult. And uh, because Wall loves a pull-up jumper from the right elbow or the right elbow extended as well in those situations, really try and combat that. But instead, they went another direction. And I think once you start switching up those matchups, if you put George on the ball, you really have to worry about Lance, about Lance Stevenson getting around screens if he's going to be the one. Well, really with Beal or Ariza, but the Wizards run Beal around so many baseline screens for curls and just quick catch and shoots. Uh, you know, that's that's a really tough thing to defend, especially because few team, fewer and fewer teams run consistent action like that these days. So with Lance, if he's going to be guarding Beal, that might be an issue. So that's why I'd probably have George Hill, George Hill on Beal. But then then you lose the size advantage that Lance has. So they're just really interesting matchups in that series, uh, in that series all around. Um, and really, just when we talk about cross matches and things of that nature on the perimeter in every series, in every series we have going right now. That's really something to pay attention to going forward. And that was a major storyline in what was the most interesting, definitely, but I think most interesting on the court in a lot of ways as well series was the one that was closest to where we live, which Uh is the Warriors Clippers. And that was having covered it, but also just being, just seeing the series. It was really interesting on the court because of just the way the two teams matched up, especially without Bogut. But to see also that these are human beings that had to deal with the absolute insanity that was surrounding them, and to a point surrounding both teams, was a good reminder of how sports, you know, sports is more complicated than people think, and you know, you can't run it in a simulator, because you have to see how these things work out, and I think we learned a lot about Doc Rivers, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it really, for me, it just confirmed what we already believed about Doc and Chris Paul in that locker room. If there was a coach and player combination in the league that was able, that would be able to better handle a situation like that than Doc and Chris Paul, I'm not, I'm not sure what it would be. Uh, they just handled it with such grace and such composure, um, and there was such opportunity for knee-jerk reaction there, and I'm not surprised that they went a different, more measured direction while while still, you know, being strong with their convictions and beliefs in the situation. Uh, but it was certainly impressive. And the way the Clippers bounced back, uh, you know, to win to win game seven, very, very impressive. And, and the commitment from their fans, too. That's a, that's a tough position for a fan to be put in, right? When you're, when you're a follower of a team or an organization for so long, and then, you know, certain beliefs come out, even though Ster- Donald Sterling held them for so long, but they just made public, we finally have it on audio. 
you know, that's a tough spot for, you know, whether you're a player, a coach or a fan and the Clippers kind of banded together, you know, whether you not, whether, whether or not you like the, we are one kind of ad campaign that they had going. And I'm not sure that I do. I thought that was a little exploitative, but it was, it was just very impressive. And the fact that, you know, they were able to bounce back and win game seven against a team like the Warriors who, as we know, and Mark Jackson made, made clear during the season was kind of playing for his life slash their life. It's just telling of, you know, the kind of conviction the Clippers have and it's impressive. It was interesting to see also how the Clippers reacted to the Warriors basically figuring things out later in the series and realizing that they had a tactical advantage with these smaller lineups. And then basically in the last game, Blake Griffin being like, okay, I'm not going to care about that. I'm just going to just going to go all out yeah. and try it in this series. And I liked what I believe was Bill Simmons said is that, you know, it's good to to be more confident that we know Blake has that in him because there are people who are dominant athletic talents who don't have that gear of, I'm just going to try to take over. And we also saw it from Chris Paul, mm-hmm. not only in Game 7, where he played so much better than he had in the previous, in the more recent games, but also in Game 1 of the series against the Thunder. Yeah, absolutely. And just while, while we're on the topic of Doc, just really quickly, I wasn't a fan of him for Coach of the Year. Or not to say that I wasn't a fan. I didn't think he was one of the top candidates. But looking back now, and you see how much Blake and DeAndre Jordan have improved, I think that speaks to Doc's ability to motivate and make players believe in themselves more than anything. Because like you said, like you said earlier, basketball is played on the court, obviously, but there's so much that goes into basketball and how players play and how they're motivated and why they're playing a certain way that we don't get to see, whether it's in the locker room, whether it's at home and, uh, you know, other things of that nature. And Doc is just obviously just a supreme motivator, whether it's, you know, kind of the outlandish statements like calling uh, DeAndre Jordan our Bill Russell or the new age Bill Russell like he did before the season or really motivating Blake uh, ensuring that Blake develops into the player we've all hoped he would be uh, when Chris Paul was out and kind of giving him more latitude and responsibility to bring the ball up the floor and almost play a more point forward role. Uh, DeAndre and Blake just have grown so much this season and I I think it's why the Clippers are going to advance to the conference finals here. Yeah and I like to think of that the role of a coach in terms of maximizing the talent that he has, both from a physical standpoint and from a mental standpoint. And I think that's the amazing thing about Doc Rivers is I think all of his guys are in the right mental frame of mind. And I think we saw a different DeAndre than we'd seen in other years. But also on the court, I mean, he basically, it seemed like he gave more all the time. And then he used Chris Paul's injury as an opportunity to test out what Blake could really do and to see if he could do more. And then the most important part, and this is a difference between Doc and a lot of other coaches, is once he learned that he had that, he used that to his advantage for the rest of it. And actually, that really helped the team when Chris Paul's injury started catching up with him because he had another guy yes. who could run the offense and who could initiate at various times. And they would use Redick because Chris Paul wasn't physically able to do it all the time. And so not only did he build the confidence in a player, but he also gave himself a safety valve in case his team's best player couldn't do what he usually does. Yeah, and that actually works out well for what we've been meaning to discuss here. And it's, you know, Mark Jackson was fired yesterday. We know this. Jackson is obviously, like I talked about with Doc, a supreme motivator. His players are behind him, you know, in huddles, off the court, whether, you know, it's the much-documented stuff about chapel and religion and team prayer and all that stuff uh you know the warriors were really really invested in mark jackson and really bought into that and you saw and we saw it with steph curry's comments steph curry's immediate comments right after jackson was fired the warriors bought into mark jackson he was absolutely instrumental in their rise from kind of bottom dweller to 
really legitimate contender. And who knows who knows what would have happened in the Clippers series if Andrew Bogut were healthy. Uh, you know, we, we can only speculate. But the Warriors are a good team now, and Jackson deserves credit for helping to foster all of that growth that they've made here over these last two or three years. But to say that there isn't a better coach out there to develop their kind of on-court synergy, um, especially offensively, you, you and I and Nate Duncan and Ethan Sherwood-Strauss like to talk about the Warriors' complete reliance on exploiting the so-called mismatch and isolations in the post and just how uh, really just kind of grading that is to watch for a team built this way. Uh, it's things like that that really off-the-court stuff notwithstanding. Um, that when I when I think of Jackson and why he was fired and whether or not I agree with the decision, I keep coming back to yes, I can see it because the Warriors, as talented as, the, as talented as they are offensively, sometimes they just got far too bogged down. So Jackson deserves credit for the Warriors' growth and their culture and their identity and building them up into this team into this team of confident, good players. And but I'm not sure that he's the best coach to lead them going forward once they've reached a point of contender. Someone needs to push them over the edge, and it'll be interesting to see who it's going to be. I, I agree with all that. I think that what struck me about Jackson in pretty much every phase of him is that it feels like he's going to do his thing and that he wasn't particularly adaptable to the unique circumstances that presented itself unless absolutely necessary. He didn't really fiddle with Harrison Barnes at power forward until David Lee got hurt and he actually had to do it because he had no other options. He didn't really fiddle with the lineup, the Curry, Clay, Iguodala, Draymond Green, Bogut lineup. They played 71 minutes together and yeah. we didn't actually get to see it in the playoffs. And and you saw that with the way that he used matchups and what I struck me at the time, I wrote a whole rant on this at the time, was he said this line that stuck with me for the whole season about how they ran at the end of the Oklahoma City game at home that was won by an Andre Iguodala game winner. And Westbrook hit that crazy shot. Mm-hmm. One of the best games of the year. That he said every post-up to David Lee is a quality possession. And I was thinking to myself, you know, that's true on certain teams. If you want to think of that as your philosophy, David Lee is a very good basketball player. But you have to understand that you have one of the best offensive players in the world in Stephen Curry. And so when you have Stephen Curry, that play is not a quality possession because Stephen Curry has a different strata and he can do things that other people can't do. And it seemed that as much as Jackson supported him and wanted Curry, supported him as a player and as a person, he never fully embraced or understood what he had Mm -hmm. and how to maximize that. And that's the real challenge for the next coach is that as great as Stephen Curry has been, he has been intensely underutilized offensively by Mark Jackson in this coaching scheme. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tough to argue otherwise. Steph has had a lot of responsibility here the last two or three years. But he should be he should be carrying the load that a prime Steve Nash did in you know the mid 2000s with the Phoenix Suns. He's that type of transcendent offensive player. Everyone knows what kind of shooter shooter he is. He's arguably the best shooter in league history. I believe that he is. But just from a playmaking and passing standpoint, his court sense is just unbelievable, and it's something that's so easily overlooked when you just you know when you see the pull ups in transition, the, the step backs, and things of that nature. But Steph is really an all court an all-court, all-encompassing offensive point guard. And just the gravity that he creates just because of his mere threat out there is something that the Warriors didn't take advantage enough enough of here these last two or three years because of their reliance on, like you said, David Lee post-ups and even post-ups by Andre Iguodala or Clay Thompson or even Harrison Barnes if they got a so-called mismatch 
uh, on a smaller player in the post. And hopefully we see a more freewheeling kind of freewheeling kind of offense from the Warriors here going forward, no matter who their coach is. And I think that begins with Steph having the ball in his hands more often and giving him more latitude to make plays for himself or others. And the other part of that latitude to me is getting more space from the power forward position because it opens up abilities on the floor and Steph has gotten a lot better at exaggerating and initiating contact to get to the foul line. And if there's less congestion, that will be a lot easier for him. And also, while David Lee is a great passer, there are certain points when he's not a great ball mover. He does those Mm -hmm. kind of those quick touch passes, and he's wonderful at those. But once he's kind of settled into his thing, it's more likely that the ball is going to go to the rim. And that's fine. You know, that's why I think he's a wonderful second unit guy who plays who plays units because he's he's an efficient offensive player. It's just that what you constitute as efficient is different when you have Stephen Curry because he's ludicrous. He's an insane player. And the other interesting part of that is when you're thinking about this team and the broader conceptual stand is, okay, I think Andrew Bogut is a wonderful compliment because he can be the anchor of the defense like Curry is the anchor of the offense. But thinking of how you want the other three positions to go can get really complicated, and that's where you need a firm vision. And the other flaw, I think, with the Warriors in some ways was that there wasn't enough understanding by Bob Myers of how Jackson was going to run his rotations. Because if you're going to run hockey substitutions, which is what Jackson did for better or for worse, and everybody pretty much knew that, then you're going to need a more logical second unit than what they had. Because basically, in some ways, when you're buying groceries, you have to know what your chef is going to do with it. Because if you're, you know, if you have a chef who's going to throw it all and who's going to throw it all in a gumbo and who's going to do something like that. Yeah. There's certain ingredients you don't want to put in there. Right. But if you're going to if you're going to have somebody who's going to, you know, use a little bit more of a deft touch and they're going to make different dishes and they're going to adjust based on what customers want, then you want something else. And I I feel like in some ways that while that obviously is a frustrating part of what Jackson did, at another point, it's a failure of Bob Myers. Yeah, and this is a good opportunity just to talk about, you know, whether you whether you agree with Jackson's firing or not. It's really, you know, it's really it's really irrelevant, right? Because what matters is whether or not the visions of the front office and the coaching staff aligns completely. And we that that clearly that clearly didn't happen with Jackson and the Warriors. And as time went on, it got worse and worse and worse. And whether you want to talk about all the off off the court stuff or on the court stuff, like we're just discussing now. Um, you know, basketball in the NBA, it's like any other job, right? If, if, a, if someone is doing it, if someone is performing admirably at their job, performing, performing well, but for whatever reason, they don't agree with something that their boss believes, then, you know, there's grounds to fire that person, you know, whether or not, no matter how successful they are. And so just because so much attention is on something doesn't necessarily mean it's any different than any other, you know, job situation like this. But you bring up a good point when you talk about Bob Myers. Ideally, you know, who knows, who knows what was going on, the dialogue between Jackson and Myers, but the second unit that he kind of constructed almost on the fly this season, uh, you know, with so many moves that were made in season and then last off season, it just wasn't enough to get it done. And it totally, it, it didn't jive with the way the Warriors were playing, you know, with their starters. And then especially once injuries caught up to Lee and Bogut. And that's something that obviously needs to be addressed going forward because uh, the Warriors bench, you know, in, individually, there might be some talent there, uh, you know, depend, depending on your thoughts on Jordan Crawford, especially. And, you know, the development of Harrison Barnes, I think we're all disappointed with. But Barnes is a viable player. We all know the merits of Draymond. 
obviously. And um, you know, hopefully, I think we both agree there. You mentioned it a few minutes ago that this new coach, whoever it is for the Warriors, kind of buys into small ball the way Mark Jackson should have. Uh, and it was just so obvious that Mark Jackson should have. And then we even saw it once Bogut got injured. I, to be honest, I thought the Warriors were dead without Andrew Bogut. On the Clipper Blog Live podcast, I, I, picked the Clippers to sw- I picked the Clippers to sweep the Warriors without Andrew Bogut. Obviously, that didn't happen, and that just speaks to how dominant this team can be with Steph Curry as ball handler when they can space the floor with three shooters and another big man around him. And hopefully, hopefully, that's what, uh, that's what the new coach will do. Yeah, and the other point that feels like it needs to be in here is that idea of the congruence between the front office and the coaching staff is also one of the big market advantages that the Spurs have, is that people talk about, oh, you want to replicate what they do. One of the best things that they do is that partially because of Popovich's experience as a GM and that he was there before he went to the coaching spot, is that there is an understanding top to bottom of what they want what they're looking for, and how to incorporate new people into that. And if you want to try to replicate what the Spurs do, that's really how you do it. And the really interesting possibility with that, to me, is the Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr synergy in New York, if they can get there. Um, No, yeah, absolutely. That really can't be discounted. You know, just like you talked about the synergy and that congruence between the front office and the coaching staff. And it's something not easily duplicated. You can't fake it. And the Warriors and, you know, Joe Lacob and Bob Myers on down the line to Mark Jackson didn't have it. And, uh, you know, that's something that really needs to be there. And despite the, I I think, I'm trying to think of the right adjective here to describe the on-court results for the Warriors over the past two years. I think solid isn't quite good enough. It was probably a little better than solid, whatever adjective would be, whatever adjective that would be. Uh, you know, despite their success, I think that's that's really what's most important here. And for the Warriors to reach that Spurs level, that Miami Heat level of contention, you know, that congruence from front office to coaching staff needs to be there. And uh, you know, players, coaching staff, front office needs to be there across the board. And it wasn't with Jackson. So in their coaching search, I'm sure they'll properly vet. Uh, you know, these candidates to make sure that, you know, the coaches' beliefs align with the front office beliefs and so on and so forth. Agreed. And there's a point in there that's also really interesting. And you talk about how the Warriors did and trying to find the right word is that the other complication with it is that they were so much better than they had been previously. And so you had this fan base that had just been beaten down by disappointing season after disappointing season. And basically our entire adult lives, other than the We Believe team. Right. So you have these fans that are thinking, wow, this is the best that we've been, this is so great. But then you also have this feeling, and I think a lot of fans might, if they really kind of, if you want to use the Star Wars phrase, search their feelings, understand that this team could have been better than what they were. And that's the really complicated difference with this Warriors team, is that they were better than they've been, but that they could be better than they are. And that's a really complicated thing. And I think that the other team that is dealing with this in a more longer-term perspective is the Oklahoma City Thunder, and they have a really complicated situation with Scotty Brooks because Kevin Durant's relationship, it seems even closer than Curry and Jackson, mm-hmm. if you watch Durant's an incredible MVP speech. Amazing. And Durant is closer to unrestricted free agency, and it would be much harder for Oklahoma City to get a replacement considering the difference in their circumstances. I'm glad you brought that up because I made that comparison, the Brooks-Jackson-Oklahoma uh, City Golden State comparison on Twitter yesterday, and it's a, it's a really good one. Maybe Scott Brooks, not even maybe, Scott Brooks was the right man, the right coach to develop the Thunder, to develop Kevin Durant, 
Russell Westbrook, Serge Ibaka, Reggie Jackson, on down the line into the players they are now. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's the right person to guide them going forward once they've reached this level of, I don't want to say dominance because they haven't won a title or anything like that, but once they've reached a level as legitimate perennial contender, right? Uh, sometimes, you know, it, it takes it takes a certain coach or, you know, a certain certain new identity, a certain new strategy to put to put a team over the top. And we actually saw that with Miami in 2011. As the Heat were constructed, they were playing big. They were playing far slower. Uh, their pace in the half court wasn't what it is now. And then Eric Sprolstra went and he grew and he developed and he talked to different coaches from other sports and learned, uh, you know, the way that this team with LeBron and Shane Battier and kind of Dwayne Wade able to kind of play a chameleon-like uh, position defensively and offensively learned the best way for them to be the best they can be. And the Thunder haven't done that yet. I, you know, I'm really not sure they have. I've, before this season, before, not even before this season, before this, before the series against the Memphis Grizzlies, I was a staunch defender of Brooks. And then just watching that series and how the Thunder got so consistently bogged down and watching Kevin Durant stand in the corner and not fight to get open off ball, watching Russell Westbrook just pound the ball into the ground. Those are individual deficiencies. Durant needs to do a far better job of you know, fighting to get open, of fighting to get around screens and things of that nature. And Russ obviously needs to make better decisions. But I think that goes back to the coaching staff and to the head coach um, you know, more than people like to believe. That kind of discipline and growth that takes to – Make sure that those deficiencies are no longer deficiencies. Um, maybe Scott Brooks isn't doing that enough. Maybe he's not ensuring that his players are in the best positions for them to for them to succeed. And I think no matter what happens this season, unless the Thunder win the title, obviously, I'll still feel that way. I think public sentiment has certainly been that way for a while. And like you said, it's it'll be very interesting to see what happens after the season. I do not think the Thunder will win the title because Durant and Scott Brooks are so close and he hits free agent free agency, you know, sooner than Steph does. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Obviously, the Warriors believe that they are bigger than a certain player, that they are bigger than Steph Curry, because as we all know, Curry was on the Mark Jackson bandwagon. Will the Thunder feel the same way about Durant? You know, time will tell. And it's certainly one of the it's a fascinating storyline going forward. Yeah, and I like the point. I wish I remembered who brought it up on Twitter, and if you saw it and you remember, please tell me. Somebody made the parallel between Rick Carlisle when he coached the Detroit Pistons and Larry Brown, and the idea was that Carlisle did a great job of getting them to the doorstep, but that they needed somebody a little bit different, and also they got a talent infusion that year when they basically stole Rasheed Wallace. Right. That you sometimes you need somebody a little bit different, and what's going to be hard to to piece together whenever the story of this Thunder history is written is also how that fits in with trading James Harden, and that there there's this weird combination that to me what what should have happened was that when they lost in that finals, that was the chance to say okay, Scotty Brooks, you're a wonderful coach, you're a wonderful man, mm-hmm. but we're going to need something better to get us past Miami. And if there, I don't know who it would have been. I I can't hindsight is also ludicrous in this kind of situation, (laughs) but they had an opportunity to do that. And I understand why they didn't. I mean, Scotty Brooks was very popular and there are a lot of complicated stuff. I'm not going to rehash the Harden trade again, but the Harden trade was the Harden trade. And so there is a certain, I guess you could call it courage Mm -hmm. that you have to have to, make that move when you're already having success, but you feel like you should be having more success. And the other perilous thing for the Warriors is that there are not a ton of coaches 
that can get you over that that threshold, over that past the doorstep. Mm -hmm. And they're going to have to make the right decision because the challenging thing about basketball is that your peak, whatever that peak is, doesn't last for very long. And the Warriors have, have made decisions in terms of acquiring Bogut, acquiring Iguodala, and keeping David Lee as a part of this to to shorten their peak, but ideally elevate it, to make it so that they'll be better for a shorter period of time. And they basically, to me, they have three years. Mm-hmm. And that means probably they have one coach, unless it they go full like Bobby Valentine and lose the next coach after one year. <laughs> so... So they have that, and they have to understand the gravity of that, that they have three years because three years from now, they're going to have a lot of players who are going to be free agents who they might not want to re-sign, and they're going to have one superstar player who could do whatever he wants. Yeah, I, li- I like what you said about the Warriors' three-year three, three year window because it is real. I mean, it's it's time now, as early as this next season, when we need to start worrying about the decline of Andre Iguodala. Um, you know, he's had so many, he's got so many miles on his body and his, his is a game kind of rooted as cerebral a player as he is on both ends of the floor, especially defensively. His is a type of play rooted in just awesome quick twitch athleticism, right? And he turns, he's, he's 30 years old right now. And obviously, you know, that's, that's not, that's not too old, but the Warriors are paying him. Let's see here. They're paying him. $12 million basically a year until 2017. And then they're playing over that same time period, they're paying David Lee $15 million, $15 million a year. And they're paying Andrew Bogut $12 million a year until 2017. So they're locked into this core and what will decide how far they can go as much as, uh, as much as who the next coach will be, will be how players like Clay Thompson and Harrison Barnes and Draymond Green develop. And and even Festus Azili is a guy that is a guy that we forget about sometimes because he missed the entire season. He showed some good flashes his rookie year, ones that I really didn't think he was capable of. He obviously has trouble even catching the ball offensively, but defensively he could be you know he could be a stalwart. Not I don't want to say in that Bogut mold, just because to expect any player to develop the type of mental capacity, just that kind of innate you know decision making that Bogut has defensively. Uh, you know that's a that's a little a little irresponsible to project any player to develop that but the Warriors have some good young pieces as their kind of core older guys grow and will you know likely start declining and it's gonna what's really gonna matter is the development of those younger players and how long the Warriors can hold on to them and it'll certainly be interesting to see. So we've talked a lot about potentially for the coaches and all that kind of stuff who if it were your if it were your decision and sadly enough it's not yeah who would be on your list and who would be your number one, let's say they were interested? Uh, I mean, it's Stan Van Gundy, right? I mean, it, it's a, that's a very popular call. And, you know, how likely it is that he even considers taking this job, who really knows? I think it's unlikely that he probably comes back to coach this season or this next season, let alone takes the Warriors job because of his brother's relationship with Mark Jackson, unlikely his relationship with Mark Jackson. You know, kind of, I doubt he'd want to violate that contract, an uh, unspoken contract among coaches, but He's my first choice, and then another another name that kind of has been thrown about just a little bit, but not as not as much as I as I anticipated, and that some people might not like is George Carl. I think just with the personnel on hand for the Warriors, I, I really think he'd be he'd be a great choice. What about you? I think that Carl would be an interesting one. Stan Van is my number one of reasonable coaches. Right. Obviously, Popovich would be Popovich <laughs> would be above that, but yay! But Popovich would be wonderful. Yeah, but. 
Sam Van Gundy would be really interesting. I had Adam Wartson on the podcast last week, and we were talking about the parallels between a way you could construct this Warriors team and the 2009 Orlando team that made the NBA Finals. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are some scheme similarities, but also the big difference between that Orlando team and this Warriors team is not the gap between Dwight Howard and Andrew Bogut. I don't think that's huge. But the difference is that Stephen Curry is a better offensive player than Stan Van has dealt with in a long time. Yeah. I mean, obviously he had he had Dwayne Wade when Dwayne Wade was was a freak in that sense. Mm-hmm. So he's he he has had quality offensive players. But I feel like he could do the most with this team, and he's definitely a possibility. It'll depend, you know, on what they're doing. But I'm also intrigued. The high risk guy that I'm interest, interested in is Hoiberg because we've seen that Hoiberg is creative offensively mm-hmm. and he also he has some of those weird benefits that Jackson has that he's a name that players might already know mm-hmm. and he seems like a personable guy so I think of the people if let's say Stan Van is off the market I think that Carl's an interesting one, though my criticisms of him have always been that I think he's really bad at making adjustments. Mm-hmm. I think that he has bad instincts in that sense. But holy Moses, would that be a fun team to watch, at least in the regular season. Exactly. You know, the idea, I think, behind behind George Carl or D'Antoni in that same sense is that they would be so dominant at what they did well that the other stuff wouldn't matter. And right. The part of the part that I think is most interesting about this Warriors team, and we've danced around it a little bit, is that I feel that any team that has Andrew Bogut, Andre Iguodala, and Draymond Green will be fine defensively. As much as the players buying in and playing hard, and the Warriors had a pretty good scheme defensively, so I feel like that'll work itself out. You know, unless you're killing them offensively because you're having them work too hard, you're going to have a good defensive team as long as those guys are at least moderately healthy. So if you can get somebody who is creative offensively that doesn't strain the defensive specialists, mm-hmm. I think you, you, you have all of this untapped potential. Like if you can keep the Warriors as a top five defensive team and you can move them from 13th or 12th or wherever they were to 6th, right. all of a sudden you have an undeniable title contender. They might not be the favorites for the title, but they're in that mix, and they're basically, it's kind of the idea is that would be a team that you would expect to make the conference finals. And one, if you're top five, top six in both offense and defense, that's where you should be. And the logic is, at that point, anything can happen, because somebody could get hurt, you know, whatever could happen. So it's a really interesting logic that I hope that the front office is actually thinking about, the idea of just seeing what would happen with an offensive an offensive genius, let's say. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And people were mentioning the Mike D'Antoni name on Twitter yesterday uh, in just kind of a, as a means for discussion. And a couple a couple other writers or analysts were just skeptical of what that would do to the Warriors' defense. And like you said, and I, I said it yesterday on Twitter, with the core of Bogut, Iguodala, Green, and even Clay Thompson, who I think has really developed into an awesome defender. We saw it in the Clippers series on ball against Chris Paul. He was just awesome and far better than far better than I anticipated. And I thought he was a solid defender before that series. But after uh, you know after this first round series against the Clippers, I didn't. I'm ready to say that Clay Thompson is one of the best young wing defenders in the NBA, for sure. I'm not even sure it's debatable. So when you have a, a core of those four guys, and like I said, with Festus Azili hopefully being healthy next year too, no matter who you hire, uh, even if even if it's a guy like Mike D'Antoni, I'm not sure you can expect much defensive slippage with just 
the combination of mental and physical capacity that those guys bring to the table. I don't think the Warriors could fall far defensively. And obviously they're talented. They're talented on the other end as well with Steph and Clay and, you know, Iguodala and, you know, and even Bogut, you know, is a, for what he lacks as a finisher, he's a fantastic passer and just a really creative playmaker uh, from the elbow and the top of the key. And then we all know the merits of David Lee and Draymond and hopefully Harrison Barnes will develop a little bit. I think there's just so much potential for the Warriors to be, like you said, one of those teams that's top six, top seven in offensive and defensive efficiency. And I think, I'm looking it up real quick, there are only two teams in the NBA this year who were top seven even in both offense and defense, and it was San Antonio and Oklahoma City. And, you know, that's something to aspire to. If you're an organization, aspire to what the Spurs and the Thunder are doing. We, you know, we see it time and time and again. You hear it over and over again. So that's why George Carl is a, is a favorite candidate of mine. And you mentioned Hoiberg. I went to the University of Kansas, so I'm a Big 12 guy, and the Iowa State plays in the Big 12. He has a tendency to rely on isolation just a bit much, a bit much coming from coming from the Mark Jackson years. Obviously, he would, uh, you know, he'd, he'd evolve as a, as a strategist and as a coach once he gets to the NBA level. But that just gives me just a tiny bit of hesitance. But other than that, and that's just a, you know, a minor bone to pick and certainly not something to expect would be a problem going forward if he were to be named Warriors coach. Uh, I think he's a, I think he's a fantastic candidate. And along those same lines, as a guy who doesn't have NBA sideline experience. Steve Kerr is is another popular name that's been mentioned. Obviously, we talked about him with the New York job and, you know, he's he's getting some traction uh, as, a, as a name for the Warriors, too. That's another interesting option. So we'll see what happens. What do you think of Kerr? Because my my thought on it is actually very similar to what I said, ripping the Mark Jackson hire when it happened of the idea that he's a he seems like Kerr. The difference between Kerr and Jackson is I think Kerr is more intellectually interested in yeah. basketball in that sense. But you're running a risk because it's something so different than what he has done. <laughs> and as we talked about in the three-year window, if it, if it's going to take Kerr a year or two to really get it, then that cuts a year or two off the window. And I so it could work. I think in a lot of ways you could I would describe him as the highest variance play of the reasonable options. So it could really work. You know, he could be I could see him being a championship level coach. But at the same time, you know, it could be that the patience that they would give him would effectively cut two years maybe out of the window of the three years. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's actually something I, I like to talk about a lot is that we don't think of coaches improving the way we do that we think players improve. And that's just and it's flat out wrong. Uh, just like anything else, you know, no matter no matter what you're doing, uh, coaches, coaches can get better at their jobs. We see it from year to year. Uh, we see it with Terry Stotts this year. Uh, we, we saw it with Eric Spolstra from 2011 to 2012. And, you know, the list really goes on and on. So, yeah, certainly a concern. The adjustment period going from a commentator to the sideline, that's a huge, huge adjustment. And we kind of saw it with Mark Jackson a few years ago. And whether or not the Warriors have time, uh, you know, for Kerr to adjust and, be, and to become the level of coach, I think that most of us think he could be is a good question. We talked about that three-year window. And, you know, it's a very it's a very real thing. And, you know, who knows if they have the time? I'm not sure that they do. And that's why Kerr isn't necessarily a favorite uh, of mine. He's not a top three or top four guy uh, candidate in terms of who I'm looking for. But he's certainly an interesting option. And just you can hear when listening to him. You know, he knows the game. He understands analytics. 
And even though he kind of broke up the seven seconds or less Suns when he was general manager by acquiring Shaquille O'Neal and kind of playing with two bigs more often than those Suns were accustomed to, he understands the merits of small ball too. He talks about it with the Thunder constantly when he's doing their games, when, you know, if they need to get Kendrick Perkins off the, off the floor and slide Durant to the floor and spread the floor and create mismatches that way. Kerr's obviously a bright basketball mind. And like you said, it's just whether the Warriors decide that he has the just natural acumen for coaching. So the adjustment won't be so big that next year will be lost. And, you know, who knows? We'll see. And the funniest thing about that Kerr criticism that I laid on the Warriors is that the Knicks have the ability to help that learning curve as much as any team ever could, because not only do they have one of the best coaches of all time in Phil Jackson, but they have a coach in Phil Jackson, a former coach in Phil Jackson that Steve Kerr played under. Right. So when you're talking about an adjustment, there there will be no terminology problems. There will be no no issues with that. And and also the Knicks are they're not going to be great probably for a couple of years. I mean I think they'll be better next year than they were this year. Mm-hmm. But they they had a lot of crap go go hit the fan this year. So that that would be surpri- it would be surprising for them to be worse. That's what I find really interesting for Kerr is that I think the best situation for him in terms of basketball is the Knicks. But there's all, but as we're talking about, you know, these are people, and he his base of operations is California. Mm-hmm. He has a child, I believe it's a daughter that's at Cal, which is very, very close to the Warriors' facilities. And even when their facilities, if they are eventually in San Francisco, he will still it'll still be very, very close. So then you so for him you have to balance that, and you also you have to balance that. The Warriors are a really good team. We've talked about it. We have very high expectations for it. So even if Let's say in the case of Mark Jackson, even if we say as analysts and we have a foundation for it that this team may have underperformed relative to their talent, he can still go out. Let's say he now he has to get another job and he can say, hey, I won 48 games and 51 games. So look at that. Look at how wonderful that is. That's a lot easier to make a case for affirmatively for yourself than oh, well, I was on this team and they were screwed up. And so we won 40 games or we won 38 games but you should hire me because I'll do better with your team. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think Warriors fans kind of need to caution themselves, no matter who is ultimately hired as the coach for next season and beyond, overreacting to how the team does in 2014-2015. There's going to be so much, there's just already been knee-jerk reaction to this decision to fire Jackson. And just because the Warriors say they missed the playoffs next year or say they advance to the conference, conference finals, that doesn't necessarily mean that the decision was right or wrong uh, to fire Jackson and hire whoever the guy might be. Like anything else, it takes time to properly evaluate decisions made in the NBA. And, you know, we won't we won't know the ultimate benefit or lack of one for this decision for several years, uh, you know, for two or three years down the line. So I, th- I think really that's something the Warriors, Warriors fans need to caution themselves against just because of uh, all the uh, – I don't want to say vitriol isn't the right word, but just so much has been so much has been said about Jackson over the last you know two years and whether or not he's the right man for the job. And then when Judgment Day finally came, some people have relented and said, "How could you fire a coach who's you know arguably the most successful in franchise history?" You know, so no matter how well the Warriors do next season, the jury will kind of still be out as to whether or not this was the right decision. And you know, we won't know for a while, so we'll see. Yeah, and there's a nuance to that that I think you hit on really well. And I'm somebody who said that Lakeup and the the front office have put a ton of pressure on themselves with the with this hire. Yeah. 
But I don't think that you're going to assess whether that was a success or not with how they do the first year. Yes. I, I mean, there are a lot of people, and I'm thinking of thinking of our mutual friend Ethan Sherwood Strauss, who talk about the idea of results over process. Mm-hmm. And you know that what the Warriors fans need to understand is that the process is what's important here. And the other part of it is that the NBA, as we saw with teams in positive and negative directions, look at the Phoenix Suns if you want, look at the Knicks in the other direction if you want, or the Pistons, that... Things can happen, even that are beyond the coach, that haven't. You know, if Andrew Bogut or Stephen Curry, heaven forbid, if something happens to them and they get hurt, and all of a sudden, you know, this team wins 35, 40 games, that doesn't make the decision wrong, just like everything going right. And let's say all of a sudden Harrison Barnes becomes a world beater, and Harrison, and, and you know, that doesn't necessarily make it the right move. You know, it's the process yes. that's important here. And What's going to be fun is that we'll have some really good indications. I think that seeing how the offense looks early on, seeing if the players, if let's say they pick an offensive coach, if the defense can stay with the intensity and the the proficiency that they've had, we'll get a sense of that. But the overarching success of it will be will require a lot of patience from both the front office and from fans, and that is hard. You know, yep. it's a lot easier to have patience when your team has been bad for a long time than when now this team has expectations for the first time since 2008. But really, it, at, in the organizational standpoint, for the first time, maybe since the Weber era, mm-hmm. since the run team, since the Weber stuff after run TMC. And that is going to be challenging. But at the same point, that's what's necessary, and that patience will end up will end up ruling things whether people want it or not, because that's just the way the NBA works. Absolutely, and the fact that we're even talking about patience being an issue and whether or not fans will have it, that really speaks to how far the Warriors have come, right? And over over these last two or three years, once Steph has developed into the, I think it's I think it's fair to say he's a superstar now, um, and you know, and they've made some other acquisitions like Bogut, and you know, Clay has developed into you know a player I really didn't think he was capable of develop, developing into, and he's only going to get better, and so many other players are only get, only going to get better. This is a good time for the Warriors, no matter how you feel about the Jackson hire. The fact that there's so much talk and speculation about who it's going to be that Stan, that a name like Stan Van Gundy is even being considered for a Warriors job is something we couldn't even consider five seasons ago, right? Uh, this is an attractive job, like it should be in a place like the Bay Area and, you know, with a roster like this. And that can't be lost among all this. And it's just uh, it's really indicative of the strides this organization has made. And hopefully the strides they'll continue to make. Yeah. And to even think about the possibility that both jobs are open at the same time and that there are some coaches that would consider taking the Warriors job over the Lakers job yes. is absolutely insane when you think about the history of those franchises. And I think that says a lot about how far the Warriors have come. And it says a little bit about how far the Lakers may fall, though <laughs> I think they're really close to being strong again. It's just that they're on a precipice as well in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up, I'm I'm 24. So the mid 2000s and the early 2000s, really the early 2000s, all I knew were were dominant Lakers teams. And then at the end of the 2000s, all I knew were dominant Lakers teams then. You mentioned the We Believe Warriors in 2007, and then they had a successful year in 2008 after that. But, you know, this is this is uncharted territory for recent iterations of the Warriors. And it's, it's all good stuff. And like you said, the fact that certain coaches are even considering whether or not they should take a job in L.A. or New York or the Bay Area with the Warriors... That speaks to how far they've come, and uh, you know it's it's a it's it's obviously it's obviously a good thing, and I think the Warriors' job has suddenly become 
I'd, I'd, argue, I'd argue more attractive than the Lakers job, you know, given the strength of the roster, given the market, given questions surrounding Kobe uh, and his contract and questions with ownership in, in L.A. and New York, even with even with Phil on board. The Warriors are in, are in a very strong position, even if they should lose out on their first candidate, whoever that may be, to, you know, to a job in L.A. or New York. The Warriors will still come away with one of the top coaching candidates on the market. And like, like we've been saying for the last couple of minutes, that speaks to just how far this organization has come. And I, I really think you have to give Joe Lacob some credit for that. And obviously Bob Myers as well. So overarching theme here, good times for the Warriors, no matter what happens with this coaching search. Yeah, good times, high expectations. Mm-hmm. And we'll pivot for the last, last little bit and talk about the playoffs that are still upcoming, because obviously we still have eight teams that are left and that will eventually become one. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering both what you're looking forward to and what you're expecting to see in the next couple of weeks. I'm just really, really looking forward to seeing how this Clippers Thunder series plays out. I was talking to Fred Katz the other day of Clipper Blog, uh, of ESPN True Hoop Network's Clipper Blog, and we were just debating the last time that four of the top 10 players in the league, KD, Russ, CP3, and Blake, have ever played in the conference semifinals. And I, like I said, I'm young. I can't, I can't remember a time. So just seeing that much talent on the floor as early as this in the playoffs is so exciting. And also to see, I think, on the, on the other side of the bracket, see how the Washington Wizards, see how they do against Indiana and whether Indiana can finally reclaim the identity that made them such a dominant force in the first two and a half, three months of the season. Obviously, they didn't in game one, and I'm not expecting them to. As the playoffs, as the playoffs continue, I'm not sure they beat the Wizards. But these are, these are very exciting series. And even the San Antonio-Portland series, despite the awful result last night, I think, that, I think that'll be a good one as well once the series shifts back to Portland and kind of coming full circle here from what we first talked about in, on this podcast. The play of Damian Lillard really needs to improve, needs to get better far better than it was in, in game one for for the uh, Spurs Spurs Blazers series to be as good as it can be because I really think I really think it can be very very competitive you're seeing most analysts you know picking that series to go to six or seven games and I'm expecting I'm expecting more of this more of the same despite the beat down San Antonio put on Portland in game one yeah, I think those are all excellent points, and I, I, Lillard d- definitely does have the ability to take a to take a big step. And to me, the other thing that I'm looking forward to beyond the Clippers Thunder series and what that means for a lot of different things in terms of the balance of power of the conference is I think we're going to get conference finals and hopefully an NBA finals that are going to be absolutely exhilarating because there's so much talent not only on the court but on the sidelines, and I think that. One of the really nice things about what we could be getting into here is that Miami, the Spurs, and the Clippers in particular are all incredibly good teams that are all incredibly well coached. And the Thunder have a ton of talent, and we don't know what's happening with the Pacers. But the Pacers, you know, the early part of the year, I would have put them in that group. You know, a very good team that's very well coached. And I I have no idea. They could turn it on. They still have that ceiling in them. Mm. So I'm really excited for the possibility of having three or maybe even four teams that could legitimately win the NBA title going out in the conference finals, because in some years it feels like it's a drumbeat for one side or the other. And that certainly could happen, especially if it happens with Miami, Mm -hmm. because they're, they're just ludicrously good. But the possibility of, let's say, if it ends up being Spurs and then the winner of Thunder Clippers, that series, I'm going to try to kill any plans I have to make sure that I can watch all those games because it's just going to be awesome. And we had such a great round one 
that it it might, you know, even if the worst case scenario for round two beyond injuries is that, you know, there are a bunch of blowouts, it, it ends pretty quickly, that still lends itself to an awesome third and fourth rounds. And that's that's worth being excited about as well. Oh, absolutely. The Western Conference Finals, no matter who advances, will be absolute must-watch TV, as you say. I'm not expecting, I can't, I can't say the same for the East. I think Miami will not walk into the NBA finals, but kind of, I guess, jog, <laughs> I guess might be better. They, I don't think they'll have any problems with Brooklyn, uh, despite some awesome personality matchups there with KG and Pierce and their relationship with LeBron and Wade. I'm not sure that's a competitive series. And uh, no matter who advances, if it's the Pacers or the Wizards, I think the Heat make relatively easy work of them. But the Western Conference Finals should be absolutely epic. No matter who makes it, I'm expecting the Spurs and the Clippers to advance. And then, you know, who, whoever advances to meet the Heat in the NBA Finals. Uh, I, I chose the Spurs before the playoffs. I'm sticking that way. And, you know, what, what, what more could we ask for than a rematch of one of the best of, in my opinion, was the best finals I've ever seen last year's the seven-game epic series between the Spurs and Heat. I'd love a rematch of that. You know, whether or not that comes or the Clippers or even the Thunder advance to the NBA Finals to face Miami, you know, we're, we're in for a fun ride. And it's already been great these, you know, those last two and a half, three weeks. Yeah, and one of the fun things about this Miami team is that there's a history basically with everybody in them. Yeah. So, you know, if it's the Thunder, there's a plenty of history there, and you also have the Durant-LeBron thing. If it's the Spurs, we know that. And if it's the Clippers, there's that has a lot of legacy and broad implications. That, that also raises the profile of Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, mm-hmm. which certainly makes the league. And also, that series might end up pivoting on DeAndre Jordan. Yeah. And how crazy is it if we if somebody had told us eight months ago that DeAndre Jordan might end up being a pivotal player in the NBA Finals. <laughs> I mean, that that's it's in, it says something about him, and as we were talking about before, it says something about Doc Rivers, that it's, I just find any, basically, any potential matchup with Miami just absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. from a basketball perspective and from an, even if you want to call it an emotional sports writer perspective. Oh, no, I, I, I totally agree with you, especially that part about the emotional sports writer perspective. Just seeing... I, I'm, I, I mention it pretty frequently. One of my favorite moments from last season, or really since I've been covering or following the NBA my entire life, was uh, after Game 7, Miami sealed it, the clock runs out, and Popovich immediately embraces LeBron and Wade, and then LeBron and Wade embrace Duncan. And that really speaks to the kind of, um, the kind of sense of togetherness and you know, sense of sense of identity and sense of culture that basketball promotes. And it's just, it's, it's awesome. And when you get, once you get, you know, LeBron, LeBron's kind of at the center, at the center of all of it. Right. And no matter who Miami advances to face in the finals, like you said, there, there are storylines there with every, with every single team, every single team left in the West. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really, really excited to see how it plays out. I picked San Antonio to beat Miami in seven games before the playoffs. And despite, you know, San Antonio struggles with Dallas in round one, I haven't seen anything to dissuade me from choosing them, from sticking with that prediction. Uh, and my my ultimate dream is for San Antonio to win Game Seven over Miami, and then for Pop and Timmy to ride off into the sunset as uh, as, as kings of the NBA. As much as as much as we'd miss them, I just think that'd be an absolute storybook ending for arguably the best coach of all time, and arguably a top six or seven player of all time. So we'll see what happens, but we really. No matter no matter how this ends, and no matter how we get there, no matter how we get to the end, you can't go wrong. This it's been great, and I really think it'll only get better. 
that's a beautiful thought and coming on it was a pleasure talking with you and hopefully we'll get to do this again soon yeah danny thanks a lot it was fun man Thanks again to Jack Winter for coming on. You can read him at Hardwood Paroxysm, ESPN's True Network, including Warriors World and various other places on the internet. He get he gets his stuff around there, which is great because he produces really good content. You can also follow him on Twitter at Armstrong Winter. That's A R M S T R O N G W I N T E R. And to close out the episode, we have Jonathan Santiago of Cowbell Kingdom, which is a part of ESPN's True Network. And I've had him on before. He's incredibly knowledgeable about the Kings, and they have a particularly interesting offseason. We get into things from Rudy Gay's big decision and the Kings' big decision with Rudy Gay if he opts out to Isaiah Thomas, and he had some really interesting ideas on their draft that I really had not considered, and a discussion on DeMarcus Cousins that took me by pleasant surprise as well. So that conversation runs about 25 minutes. I think you'll enjoy it. The other thing that I wanted to add in is that we actually recorded it as they were prepping for the Golden State Warriors game against the Clippers on the past Thursday. So that means that there is ambient noise, which is unusual. I actually kind of enjoyed it as I was listening to it in editing, but it is different. So it comes in a couple minutes in, but just be ready for that. But the conversation itself is wonderful. I learned a lot from it, and it's part of the reason why I legitimately love doing the Eliminated series, to understand these teams with somebody who's so much more intricately aware and involved in more the day-to-day of the franchise. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks, Danny. Appreciate it. So when we're going through the Kings, what I thought would be first is to give people a little bit of a lay of the land in terms of the important free agent decisions. And we'll leave Rudy Gay out for a second because we'll talk about him later. So to me, the notable first guy is Isaiah Thomas. Yeah. How do you see that working out both in terms of what you would want to do and what you think the Kings will do? I, it's tough, man. I mean, we had uh, we did a Cowbell Kingdom podcast recently with James Herbert, who writes for SB Nation, covers the Raptors up in Toronto, and he's a big Isaiah guy. And I had asked him, what do you think the range is for his potential contract? And really, I think it's going to be dictated on the market. And I, like off the top of my head right now, I can't really think of too many teams that need a point guard at this point or a starting point guard who's 5'9". The only team that kind of comes to mind that you know could use that type of talent is the Lakers right now. They may have some cap space, but even then, it'll be tough. I think that with Isaiah, it'll it'll range around. I mean, he could make as low as maybe $5 million to as high as maybe $10 million. It wouldn't shock me if somebody offered him a contract starting at $10 million or lower at five. And it really does depend on what teams see him as. Do they see him as a starting point guard or do, he, do they see him as a backup point guard? And yeah, that gets into the big question because while it only takes one team, we have seen that restricted free agency can be, let's say, unconventional and unpredictable in that way that a guy might have a market that deteriorates. And the other part of it is that we don't know if teams are going to want to save their money because it looks like the 2015 class is going to be very big. So that's another factor. And do you expect that the Kings will just see what the market bears out and just kind of have a number in their mind of saying, okay, you know, maybe we go to four years at eight million a year, but and then if it's above that, then you say just congratulations, enjoy your new team? I think this is going to play out a lot like Tyreek last year. You know, last summer Tyreek Evans was a restricted free agent as well. Pete D'Alessandro had a decision to make there regarding Tyreek, and he signed the offer sheet with the New Orleans Pelicans. 
And, you know, it, the Kings had an opportunity to match, and they decided not to match. They did the sign and trade for Gravis Vasquez. And they clearly had a number on Tyreek Evans. They valued him at a certain number, and the New Orleans Pelicans offer exceeded that. So I think it is a very similar situation. I do, I can see Isaiah Thomas, you know, going out there getting a contract that is probably too rich for the Kings' blood, and they decide to part ways with him. And besides, right now, I don't think that, you know, they're they're kind of in a position of power with Isaiah, him being a restricted free agent. They don't have to necessarily go out and, and try and sign him or lock him up right away once free agency starts. I definitely feel like their main priority once the free agency period starts is going to be Rudy Gay and getting him back in Sacramento. And the other interesting part about that, as we learned with the Kings last year, is the advantage of the moratorium. And so what that allows you to do is that you're not making these decisions blind. They're hearing what the Pelicans' number is without making it blind, and then so they get to do that, and then they get to negotiate what ended up being functionally a sign-and-trade, even though it was a value that they didn't want. So we could see something like that. The other interesting part about Isaiah is that, other than Eric Bledsoe, who is kind of his own thing, the free agent point guard market and even the draft point guard market are not that strong, so that might lead to a team feeling a little bit desperate, but it's hard to see a team with a clear-cut need, as you said, that's the other factors. You you need a team with money and desire. Yeah, and definitely, I mean, you have to look at the, the new collective bargaining agreement as well. You know, I don't think that teams are going to be as willing to overspend for guys in this new CBA. And again, what do teams see Isaiah Thomas as? Is he a starting point guard or is he a backup point guard? I talked to a lot of people within the Kings organization, and there is a consensus among them that they would prefer him to be a backup coming off their bench, which is fair. For me, I think he's proven that he is a starting point guard in this league. Size be damned. But at the same time, if he is a backup point guard, if he is playing a Jamal Crawford type role, is he, if he is playing a Jason Terry type role, that's a hell of a six man that you got on your roster. Yeah, it definitely is. And he fills an interesting thing because usually when you think about a third guard, that's often a guy who plays more of a two slash one because you yeah. have a primary point guard. And so and he can th- do that. He can do that he can too. Do that. He can play off the ball. He can play on the ball. I love Isaiah. I'm a yeah. huge fan. But so moving on, the big question to me with the Sacramento Kings, and it's going to go in one one big question but split into two, is yeah. Rudy Gay. Yeah. And so the two basic parts of it are, will he opt out, and what would happen if he does? I feel like he will opt out. You know, he, we look at these players in terms of what they do on the court, and sometimes we forget that they're people as well. Rudy, I would assume by now, or if not sooner rather than later has had his newborn son born um, you know he was dealing with that issue with his wife being pregnant at the end of the season and, and her being due at any point in time so he's going to have to factor that in this next contract that he signs um, whether it's this year or next year he's going to be raising his son he's going to be raising his family in whatever place that he signs with and I think that because of that when you when you factor in the fact that he's got uh, you know, a kid on the way, he'd rather he'd rather have that part of his, his life as, in terms of, you know, playing and where he's going to be playing in the foreseeable future all hashed out as opposed to going through this process again next season. So I feel like he will opt out, much like Andre Iguodala did last year to come and sign with the Golden State Warriors. And where it goes is anyone's question. I think, you know, when it comes to Rudy, it really does depend on 
what happens with Carmelo Anthony? Because he is going to be the premier small forward on the market that's available. And I think a lot of teams that would make sense for Rudy are going to be chasing Carmelo first. And once Carmelo's situation is situated, then I think you will see Rudy Gay, uh, you know, sign a contract not long after that. But that could also play into the Kings' advantage. Maybe, you know, while while teams like the Chicago Bulls are chasing a Carmelo Anthony, the Kings have time to sign him and lock him up to a long-term deal. And you bring up an excellent point in terms of the stability and the fact that these are people. And while he might be losing, if you want to call it, annual average value, you know, that he's not going to maybe get the same amount that he's opting out of, he not only gets the security in terms of dollars, but he gets the security in terms of location. Yes. And when you're talking about a, young, a guy in his late 20s, early 30s, is building a family and is trying to develop that place, you know, where he's going to be for probably the main part of the rest of his career. And that has to be interesting to him. And how do you think that this year in Sacramento, or not even a year, six months closer to it, has affected that? Do you think, would your guess be that that has made it a more likely destination for him? I, I do. And and Pete D'Alessandro has made, has, has been totally transparent about it. He said, this was a strategy. We wouldn't have a chance at getting Rudy Gay if he weren't already here. You know, it was a tryout for us. That's what he, that's what he says. And that's, you know, they're, the whole party line there with the Sacramento Kings is that they acquired Rudy Gay for it to be a tryout for him and for them on his behalf. And I think with that, you know, they do have the incumbent advantage. You know, he's he's gotten to know Mike Malone and, and know his style. He's gotten to know Pete D'Alessandro and what he's trying to do. And he's gotten to know the ownership group there. And I think that really does help their case uh, in terms of re-signing him to a long-term deal. And then the other part of it that's interesting in terms of how Rudy is building his brand is that when you only have one other guy with Carmelo and we don't exactly know, we know what his market is, but we don't exactly know what he's going to be willing to take is that in certain circumstances, the teams that are clearing space for what would have been LeBron or in this case is going to be Carmelo because the expectation is that LeBron is not really on that market in that same sense, even if he opts out. And so a team could just be like, well, we have Rudy, he's, he's within our price range, he's a good basketball player. And so that could be an interesting market for him, but at the same point, it might not be one of those slam dunk scenarios. I don't see any team out there that, that in another market or another franchise that goes, oh, that's such an easy call, he should definitely go there. And that definitely works in the Kings' advantage as well. Yeah, and I think with when it comes to Rudy as well, he has to consider not in, a, in addition to you know his long-term future with his family family plans but also where does he work best we've seen it in Toronto he's not a number one guy and you know if he is a number one guy your team's probably not gonna go very far but when he is playing off of a dominant big man like DeMarcus Cousins he did it in the past with Zach Randolph and Marcus Gasol in Memphis he's a much better basketball player so, you know, what teams are out there that have a similar situation? Again, I bring up Chicago. You look at Chicago, they do have Joakim Noah, but he's not the offensive force. He doesn't command the type of attention defensively that a DeMarcus Cousins does, that a Zach Randolph does. So, you know, he has to consider that. And, and another thing to consider, too, is playing into this, you know, mentioning, mentioning DeMarcus Cousins, you know, there have been a lot of murmurs uh, in and around Sacramento as to whether or not guys like playing with DeMarcus. And he has a personality that's, that can be abrasive and can rub people the wrong way. He does want to win, though. It's just that the communication style can kind of rub people the wrong way. And 
that'll be a question that I think Rudy Gay will have to answer is, was this experience enough to learn that, hey, Michael Malone, Pete D'Alessandro, Vivek Ranadive are in charge and, you know, I can deal with a guy like DeMarcus Cousins whose personality is is a bit abrasive, but I know how talented he is as well. That's an excellent point, and DeMarcus Cousins is in that way the elephant in the room. But the other yeah. thing that's interesting about the Kings is that Isaiah aside, but I think there is some stability in that. The Kings have remarkably consistent talent in terms of the guys that are going to be around them. Usually when you see teams do that, you get into those situations, but they also have a very interesting draft pick, and I was intrigued by who you like or don't like for the Kings in this draft. Yeah, it depends on where it falls, right? I mean, if they are number seven, you know, in that range, I kind of like Aaron Gordon for what he does. I mean, Fit-wise, he makes sense, but not only that, I think he might be the best talent available on the board at that point. And you know what? There's also a possibility that maybe they trade the pick, too. You know, maybe, because we saw last year in the draft, we saw guys like Nerlens Noel and Ben McLemore, who were both touted to be top three picks, fall to six and seven. And what happened with Nerlens Noel when he fell to six? New Orleans was able to find a deal with the Philadelphia 76ers and trade for a veteran, an all-star, in, in Drew Holiday. And of course the Kings, they want to win sooner rather than later. And if you have the pieces, if you have a DeMarcus Cousins, you have a Rudy Gay, and you get Isaiah Thomas back, that's a formidable trio. They're the first trio in the NBA history to score 20 points per game each. So you have a, you have a trio there. You can add another guy, another solid veteran, and you're talking about a team that may not be as far away as everybody thinks. Okay, so yeah, so they have that, and then that's definitely interesting about the possibility of trading the pick, because I hadn't, honestly, I hadn't considered that very much, but it does make sense if they're happy with their core, and their core is a little bit, they're not on the old side, obviously, but they're, you know, and they're in that young veteran phrase, if you want to think about it, you know, guys who are getting onto their second and third contracts. So if you could add a guy in a similar circumstance, considering how highly touted this draft is, you could probably find an interesting player especially with Sacramento's interesting salary cap situation that they have some complimentary contracts and things like that. If they needed to throw a Reggie Evans or Jason Terry into the trade, they could do that. Yeah, they could definitely do that. There are there are possibilities there. I mean, a guy like Jason Thompson, whose contract is, you know, looked at as, as not very uh, attractive, but if you package that pick along with it, you might be able to flip it into something. Do you think that there would be a possibility of, I guess you couldn't really do that with Isaiah Thomas because of the thing, but you could definitely get an asset for him similar to what they got with Grievous Vasquez, and if you can turn that into something else, then you could maybe get a sixth man or an eighth man that would be very useful on a team because, as we know, you need quality depth in your rotation in order to be a competitive team, especially in this super strong Western Conference. Yeah, definitely. If Isaiah does walk and they let him sign with another team, I don't see them just letting him sign outright without a sign and trade. Maybe they get a guy in that deal, much like they did Gravis Vasquez out of the Tyreek deal, or maybe they get a pick or something like that. Who knows? And then the other interesting part with Kings, as I mentioned, they have a lot of stability in terms of the guys with DeMarcus and everything, is that because of the combination of that and Sacramento being Sacramento, it getting a guy on a longer-term contract isn't the same thing that it was somewhere else. And so I think about a guy like Courtney Lee that Boston was looking for cap flexibility and that's how they moved him and did the Jairus Bayless trade. A move like that for the Kings getting the longer contract but getting a quality guy would be a very logical complementary move to possibly trading the pick as well. Yeah, I, I definitely could see that coming. Um, 
you know, they are a team that is in search of, of veteran help. And if there are guys like a, a Courtney Lee type out there that they can trade for, then you do have Travis Outlaw, as you mentioned, you have those guys' contract, Travis Outlaw, Reggie Evans, Jason Thompson, specifically Jason Thompson's contract, the biggest amount. But a guy like Travis Outlaw, who makes roughly around $3 million, is an expiring deal next season, you know, you could possibly flip him for somebody who uh, a team might be looking to just kind of get out of that contract. Yeah, and you, and we've seen that. I mean, and if the Kings end up with cap space, depending on how guys move, they can use that as an asset. We saw what Utah got for basically renting a little bit of space for a year, and that was a pretty solid value. I mean, two unprotected picks. Who knows what the Warriors are going to be two years from now? I mean, it could be a very different thing. And the thing that's fun about the current NBA is that everything is an asset if you have it correctly, yeah. except for bad money. And what the Kings just need to be focused in in that sense is just not adding bad money to their books. And yeah. they can do that. I mean, that, that's something that can be done in the current CBA. In the current CBA, with the contract length, that's another interesting thing. And I'm thinking about that in terms of Isaiah, because there seems like a very decent chance that he could get a three-year contract with the fourth year as, a, as an option year in one direction or the other. And that's also a much more workable deal than the five- and six-year deals that kind of plagued the last CBA. Yeah, I could definitely see a situation where, you know, the Kings, again, try to move a guy like Jason Thompson, even a guy like Carl Landry, who they just signed last year. It hasn't really worked out. You know, they do have two of those contracts that aren't very attractive. But again, you know, if a Carl Landry can bounce back uh, from his surgeries, the injuries that he battled this season, and a guy like Jason Thompson, too, again, I mentioned him being a contract that's not very attractive. But I think he's been in the wrong place. He's been the wrong fit for this team. And he's a talented player. I think he's a talented guy who can help out a team uh, that's possibly contending right now. I mean, you, we, we're here in Oakland right now. Wouldn't a Jason Thompson help the Warriors bench right now? He'd help the Clippers, too. I mean, yeah. the Clippers, you, you see a lot of teams that are looking for that third or fourth big, and that's definitely something that's interesting. The other guy that I'm fascinated with with the Sacramento team is Ben McLemore. And do you expect him to be a starter on this team next year or more of that super sub, sixth, seventh man type role? I think Ben could possibly start again next year. Do they want to get another guy to come in, a veteran shooting guard with, with experience to come in and, and kind of uh, be the placeholder? Yes, that was what they wanted out of Marcus Thornton, and they didn't get that out of him. Uh, yeah, I, I could definitely see him being the starter, but I could see them going after, you know, a Tony Allen type, a Tabo Cephalosha type to maybe, um, you know, bridge bridge the gap in between their desire to win sooner rather than later, and as well as his development curve, because I think Ben is still a couple years away from being the player that everybody thinks he can be. And the other factor in that, and I think about this a lot from the two-guard spot as opposed to the four, is that you could have somebody that helps have an imprint defensively, and Mike Malone is a defensive coach. I was around him when he was yeah. on the Warriors, and I think he needs that guy who can create the identity. And you talk about Tony Allen, like you, a guy who can personify at least that end, because you have the offensive talent. Even if Rudy Gay leaves, you probably have Isaiah and DeMarcus, who are both very talented offensive players. So you need that guy who everybody can kind of build around. And I've seen it, you see it with the Warriors with Andre Iguodala, and people yeah. people say that it's built. the league is built around rim protection, and I agree with that. But a perimeter defender, especially a versatile one like Tavo, could be a very useful thing for this team and kind of 
clean up some of the messes that have made the defense a little bit too loose over the last couple of years? Yeah, you know, when you look at the Sacramento Kings, they've got a lot of talent. They have players. It's just that they don't have necessarily some of the players or the type of talent that Michael Malone needs to be to to turn this team into a defensive-minded squad, and and it just takes a couple. You don't need to you don't need every single player one through five being a great individual defender. If you can get one, if you can get a guy, a veteran guy who can kind of lead that effort and teach these guys, I think that's kind of what you need. And and if you can also, as again, we talk about their defense, we talk about the shooting guard position. What about the idea of bringing in a shot blocking big man? That's why we look at a guy like Aaron Gordon as, a, as being a, a decent fit for this team um, because they need defense out of that out of the power forward position. They need somebody who is going to protect the rim. DeMarcus Cousins has gotten better. He did improve, I think, in terms of shot blocking and defense last season, but they need a little bit more in their front court. And also, to me, getting a backup true center that could be a defensive guy, and maybe you put play him a couple minutes with DeMarcus as well would be a nice little thing because then you can get a little bit of that identity on the second unit and then build that and, you know, build that into more confidence for the starters maybe. And you can see that, you know, get a guy, and if they blow up in that role, I know he's not in this draft, but a guy like Willie Cauley-Stein, you know, just somebody who can be more of a pogo stick, who can block shots, and then maybe you play him five to ten minutes a game with DeMarcus because you can do that a little bit in today's NBA just for a little bit and do that and it'll be really fun. Yeah, there is an idea out there. I mean, DeMarcus, if you ask him, he, he would say that he feels he would be best suited at the power forward position. Wow. Yeah, uh, he, he can play the center position, but he could, he feels like he can play the power forward position. And I think he can play the power forward position. It's going to be tough. I mean, obviously, defensively, it'll be tough against the, you know, the the league's growing uh, movement of stretch fours in that regard, but at the same time, those guys can't guard him. So it, it, it's kind of like a, a double whammy there, so to speak. That's awesome, because I've thought of DeMarcus as a four for a while now. I mean, obviously it could lead into some of his bad habits offensively, but if yeah. you could coach out of that, defensively it's a whole hell of a lot easier to find a rim-protecting five than a rim-protecting four. And as you said, Aaron Gordon's around, you know, they, they could exist, but if you could get, if you could do that for maybe more than five, ten minutes a game, if you could do that as a larger combination, that gives you a lot more to work with, and you see guys move around, and even possibility, while he's has some stability problems, a guy like Larry Sanders would be really fun on yeah, this team. I, I think Larry Sanders is a guy who would be a great fit. A John, John Henson would be a good fit on this team as well. The problem with Larry Sanders, I think he's a guy that they could acquire. I mean, I think his value is at an all-time low right now with him battling through injuries in Milwaukee. That extension isn't looking too hot for the Milwaukee Bucks right now. They do have new ownership coming in, which may want to kind of turn things around, much like the new ownership in Sacramento has turned things around. But the problem is the contract length and, and how much he's being paid. It just may kind of steer the Kings away from looking at a Larry Sanders type as an option. It very well could. And uh, I'll let you go on this question that I've been asking everybody for this series, which is about the idea that I call the timetable of contention. And basically the idea is, when do you think that this Kings team is going to peak? Whatever that peak is, whether that's winning a first-round series, that's kind of beside the point. But it's, when do you see as the peak of this? And that's interesting with guys like Rudy Gay and DeMarcus. Is it two to three years from now, or is it sooner than that? I definitely feel like their goal, they want to be in the playoffs by 2016. 
and 2016 is a key year in Sacramento because that's when the new arena is planned to open. Would they like to be in there sooner rather than later? Sure, I'm sure they would love to send off Arco Arena, Sleep Train Arena off with a bang with a playoff series, but at the same time, that is kind of their goal. They want to be good by then. Uh, will they win a playoff series by then? I don't know, but they do have a lot of talent, and you know, you look at a team like the Phoenix Suns that won 47 games this year, didn't make the playoffs, but it's not like they're an incredibly talented team. If this team can figure out how to play together, and we talked to Michael Malone on our podcast recently as well, talking about how this team needs to, these players need to find a way to play for one another. That's going to be a key major step if Michael Malone can get these guys to play for each other you could see this team potentially make waves in the Western Conference because it's not like Dallas is getting any younger and definitely the San Antonio Spurs are not getting any younger. Um, there's a lot of unrest, I think, um, around the around the Western Conference, and they're a team that has the young talent. I think they have the right coach to potentially make a splash sooner rather than later. The other thing that could be a major help for the Kings is that we have a new commissioner and he's shown a greater willingness to changing the playoff format. And it's entirely yes. possible that being the 10th best team in the West isn't going to be a death knell like it was in the last, let's say, 10 years. Yeah. And so that could be a situation where maybe the Kings are the 9th or 10th team in the West in 2015, 2016. And that means that they're in the playoffs because we've gone to a top 16 format. And they're an organization that should be, if it were me, tactically advocating heavily for that because they could be a massive beneficiary of any structural changes. Yeah, I, I, and I would be for that. I think that the playoff system is, is archaic, the way you have these conferences. I mean, these teams all have charter flights now. It's not that difficult for them to get from point A to point B. I think the way this was set up in terms of the conference system was more catering to when players and teams used to fly commercial. You know, to make the, the air travel much easier for them. But it's not difficult for these teams to get on a plane. And plus, if you're going to the best 16 teams in the playoffs, now you know that you're going to have, you're going to have the best two teams in the NBA Finals. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully, I, I would like to see that change made under Adam Silver. And I wouldn't be surprised if he, you know, if, he, if that's something that he pushes forward with because he seems like a very progressive guy. Absolutely. It would be great for the league and it would be great for the Kings. Thank you so much for taking time. It's been great to have you on. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks again to John Santiago for coming on. You can read him at Cowbell Kingdom, which is part of the ESPN True Hoop Network, and you can follow him on Twitter at It's John Santiago, I-T-S-J-O-N-S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O. And thanks again to Jack Winter for coming on. It was a pleasure to have him. You can read him at Hardwood Paroxysm, Warriors World, and ESPN's Troop Network more broadly. And I really like the balance of this episode to hit the larger NBA topics and also to go narrow with at least one team. So I'm hoping to do that for the next few weeks, at least until we really get into the draft. And then it's going to get a little more complicated and I'm going to have to try to do more things at once. But I really hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a blast to record. And... It's, it was the yeah it's the template for what's going to be coming up and so if there are people that you want on for anything but specifically for the eliminated it's great if you can let me know any comments criticism all that's appreciated because it helps make the show better and you can send them to me by email to daniel d-a-n-i-e-l dot larue at realgm.com 
Or what's generally easiest is you can send to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. It should be on the page if you go to this through Real GM as well. I respond. I read everything. I respond to everything. I really do appreciate it. So thank you for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how.